All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open up God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us as we study your word and probe it and think about it, reflect. We are amazed at who you are. Beyond our comprehension, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways are not our ways. But Father, you have revealed yourself to us that we can understand you to some degree. And Father, we must respond like Isaiah. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips, that we are indeed unclean. We are all sinners, but you have in your love redeemed us. You have paid the sin penalty for us by sending your son. And because of him, the debt is paid by trusting in him, We are cleansed of sin, positionally forgiven, and we are adopted into your family. Father, we're thankful for all that you have given us, and we pray that as we study today and reflect upon our resurrected Savior, that our faith is not a faith that is based upon some uh, mystical uh, insight, some non-demonstrable event, but that there is evidence that we do not, so that we do not park our brains and turn them off, but we understand that there was tremendous evidence, many convincing proofs, as Luke says in Acts 1, and that our faith, therefore, is a faith that is, that is rational, that is based upon an understanding of that which was revealed, and that it is guaranteed by God the Holy Spirit to be true. And we pray that you'd help us to understand the glories of this resurrection In Christ's name, amen. We are in Luke this morning, so turn with me to Luke 24, 30 to 45. We'll look some at John 19, not a whole lot, but a little bit. One of the things I want to do before we get into the Word is talk a little bit about some things that happened while we were in Washington, D.C. One of the uh, things that was, there's the slide, there's our, our verses, We'll focus on the evidence for resurrection in this passage, as well as get some insights into our resurrection bodies. But as I was saying, when we were in D.C., Representative Louis Gohmert, he's from the Texas District 1, which is mostly East Texas, and he is, um, I met him a number of years ago at an APAC event in D.C. He's spoken here at this church uh, in the past. He spoke that year, and he is a Uh, strong defender of the Constitution, and he is a solid believer. 
He is one of the few congressmen who do not maintain a separate residence in Washington, D.C. He sleeps in his office. He showers down in the um, in the gym that's provided there for, for uh, congressmen. Uh, he is uh, he flies home almost every weekend and on Friday, flies back Sunday night, and he teaches his Sunday school class. I had arranged this back in the early fall, and it was just us, but in the meantime, there was another church that came along and was going to be there for the same reason, to go to the Museum of the Bible, and they wanted him to give him a tour, and it's his home church from Tyler. And so they were with us uh, on the trip, so that was great. And also some folks from Dan Ingram's church joined us, and his uh, one of his deacons, the chairman of his board, is Scott Craig, who's a graduate of Texas A&M, and one of his classmates and close buddies was Louis Gomert. So it was kind of an old home week, a lot of people renewing acquaintances and friendships there, and Gomert gave us a, a great tour of the Capitol building. And it was four hours long. He, his knowledge of the history of the Capitol, knowledge of history, uh, is, is really tremendous. And we had a great time. But one of the things he brought out, it wasn't in this hall that's in the picture up there, but it is this hall, which is called Statuary Hall, which is just to the south of the rotunda. It's a room that is, has uh, statues all around it. Every state is able to have two statues in the Capitol. And Texas' two statues are Sam Houston and Stephen F. Austin. So we were there, but this room was not always a room to play statues. The Senate actually met there at an early stage in the use of the Capitol. But what most people do not know and would be surprised to hear is that this room was used, started to be used two years before the uh, uh, Congress met there. It was first used as the meeting place for a church starting in 1795. And it was um, approved to be used by a church, by both the House and the Senate. And <clears throat> it, as I, and Thomas Jefferson at the time was the president of the Senate. He had already been, he was the vice president at the time, but he had already been elected president. Now, what's significant about this is that Thomas Jefferson is the one who wrote the letter to the Baptist Church in Danbury several years later where he uh, used the phrase separation of church and state, which has been co-opted and distorted by uh, the liberal Supreme Court to indicate that there would be a wall of separation, and many people think that that's in the Constitution. But by looking at Jefferson's actions, we come to understand what he meant. He wasn't protecting government from the influence of the church. He was protecting the church from the influence of the government. And so he believed it was totally consistent with his views that a church could meet on government property and that a church met in the Capitol building. Actually, it met for a number of years before the War of 1812, and then, of course, the, the Capitol was partially burned by the British during the War of 1812, and then after it was uh, restored, they met in the a church met there from 1816 until 
uh, sometime in the 1870s. In 1856, the size of the church was 2,000. 2,000 Christians met there uh, every single Sunday. And there were by that time, there were many other churches. When it first started, the church first started there, there were no other churches in Washington, D.C. So uh, the initial part was because there was no other place to meet and they needed a church. And then later it was, uh, uh, there were many more churches in D.C., but that continued to, uh, to be there. So we had the church at the Capitol. Then we went to the Museum of the Bible, but we found out while we were there that there was another exhibit in the Capitol area at the National Geographic Museum there was an exhibit called the Tomb of Christ, which fits with what we have been studying with the crucifixion and the resurrection, so I thought I would say a little bit about this. As I pointed out when we studied about the crucifixion, the location of the crucifixion, we studied about the, um, uh, the resurrection and the tomb, I said that these are now enclosed within the confines of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. And there is a tremendous historical and archaeological validation for that being the site of the crucifixion and the, uh, and the resurrection, that that's where the tomb uh, of Joseph of Arimathea was located, right near that site. And I'm going to show you some of the pictures that they've developed. But in 18... Um, 1808, there was a fire that destroyed whatever had previously covered the, the tomb area. And so it was replaced 200 years ago, repaired and replaced with what is called an edicule, which is, it looks like a tent, but it's a solid structure. And it is inside the, one of the domes of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And I'll show you some good pictures of that in a minute. But it has fallen into bad repair. And so two years ago, they sent in teams of archaeologists and others who work with, uh, uh, with a lot of ancient things and restoration, and they used thermographic imagery, they used um, gr- ground-penetrating radar, they used infrared, they used every tool they have available today to scan ev- almost every atom in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And so more was found out about it than has really ever been known and discovered. And part of what I was corrected on, some of you have been with me to Israel, is I have been told by numerous people, and it's been widely held, that when the tomb of Christ, when that area was destroyed by uh, a caliph in 1009, that it would just level to the ground. And that's not precisely true. They took down a lot of it, but enclosed in the masonry of the edicule are the remains of the original wall of the tomb, up to about four or five feet in height. And you can, they are enclosed, and there's one place inside the actual tomb itself where they've put a glass panel in the wall, and you can actually look around and see part of the original cave wall. So it's quite interesting. Now this, I don't agree with their diagram completely here uh, on the basis of what other archaeologists and maps and other things show, but they do have some things here. This is a wide shot. I'll zoom in in a minute. Here is the tomb area, which was 
the garden tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and this is where, where Golgotha was located. They have it somewhat of a hill. I think that it was more solid. I think it was a ground level by the road, and that's what many archaeologists have said. This, is, this part of it is not what they were investigating. What's interesting is not only do you have this tomb of Joseph but based on what's there now, there were a series of other t- tombs from that same period all through this area and these these uh, walls, as well as if this is Golgotha, then this area out here would be in what's the courtyard, and underneath that, they, in, through the use of ground-penetrating radar, they've discovered a number of other tombs. So this whole area was the original rock quarry they were uh, that started during the early phase of Herod's rebuilding of the Temple Mount and it was not solid stone so they just abandoned it at which point it became an area for a graveyard and that's why they cut tombs into the side uh, walls of that uh, of that quarry but it gives you an idea here and it's what surprises people when we go there we walk into the, the to the main entry of what is what of the church that's there now was built by the crusaders in the uh, 12th century but this is only 140 feet from the crucifixion to the to the tomb and so both of them are in that one church it's they're very very close together this is the edicule which is a fabulous picture and a cutaway where you can see you walk into this outer chamber here which is called the chapel of the angel because there was an angel who was sitting on the rock the stone that was rolled away from the door and so this is the outer chapel the chapel of the angel and then you go through a very narrow passageway and then you're inside the tomb and this is a marble slab that you look at but underneath that marble slab, what they discovered when they went in there and were doing all of the restoration was you actually have the stone ledge where the body of Christ would have laid. And so that much is still there. What I've been told before is you're basically looking at uh, a marble uh, slab that was put there because everything else is gone and was destroyed by Uh, by the uh, Muslims in 1009. So that's not exactly true. So this is, this is the, your uh, schema of the, of the, this is the main dome and here's the edicule over here. Uh, Here's the outer courtyard, the main entry into the uh, chapel. This is a rock area where you can see the rock of Golgotha, but according to Joel Kramer and some other archaeologists, this is probably the area where the crucifixion took place because they, as they built the church, they built one dome over the site of the grave. They would not have built the other dome anywhere else but over the site of where the crucifixion had been. Now, all of this goes back, as I said, to the church that was built by Constantine in 350, which was built over the site of a... Uh, of a temple to Aphrodite that was built by Hadrian. Uh, he destroyed uh, all the uh, Jewish and Christian holy sites, and he built a temple to Jupiter over the site of the temple. So basically, he marked the spots for us. So there's strong evidence for this. And then this is a cutaway of the whole uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. 
This is a diagram that they put together showing what they believe the tomb looked like. Here's the stone that rolled across the entrance. This was the area where the uh, ledge or shelf is where the body would have been laying. And this is where on the outside you'd have the angel sitting on, on, the, on the stone. And then when um, Mary went in and the other disciples, they saw the two angels, one at the head and one at the foot. So this gives you their idea. This is what it looks like today. This is the marble slab that is over the ledge where the body of Jesus would have lain. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of what that looks like in case you ever go. If you get a chance to go to Washington, D.C. and go to this, it's incredible. They have a virtual reality because they were able to hide, to film in high definition every aspect of the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. And you put on a helmet and you're there. And you can look at things and go places that you can never look at or go if, if you're actually there. So it was just a, a tremendous... Every pastor, there were f three other pastors on the trip, all of whom have been there, and all of whom were absolutely stunned by this whole exhibit. It was just phenomenal. And some who were here who were on the trip went through it as well. So what we have looked at so far after the resurrection of Christ is we looked at his first appearance, which was to Mary. Then he apparently ascended to the Father before there was the second appearance, which was to the other women who had gone to the tomb. And then last week we looked at his appearance to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We will finish that up this morning and go into the second appearance, or the, what is actually the fifth appearance, uh, a fourth appearance rather, the appearance to Peter, which is a private appearance. We know he appeared to Peter. This was when uh, he forgives Peter. Uh, must have been an extremely, uh, just a poignant moment for Peter meeting with the Lord. And then he appears to the ten. So last time we saw that... Um, that the Mark passage just summarizes this appearance on the road to Emmaus, that he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. The point I keep making is the disciples were not, uh, were not ready to accept the resurrection. They didn't believe it, that when the body was not found, when they discovered the tomb was empty, they thought the body had been stolen. They were not in a position where they were trying to put forth a hoax. They didn't believe it at all. Even when Jesus appears, they, they, they don't expect it. They think it's a ghost. They don't think it's uh, the resurrected Jesus because this is not something that they're ready to accept yet. And he had to demonstrate, as Luke says in Acts chapter 1, through many convincing proofs that he had indeed... Uh, been resurrected and raised from the dead. We saw the setting that <clears throat> two of them were traveling to a village called Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they're going along, these two men are trying to process everything that has happened during the last week in the crucifixion. They're extremely disappointed because they believed Jesus was the Messiah and now that has been shattered, and they have lost their hope in the redemption of, of Israel. What we learn is that Jesus appears to them and talks to them, 
but they don't see anything distinctive about that body. They don't recognize him, but his resurrection body doesn't appear to be anything distinctive. So the first thing we learned about a resurrection body was it appears to be a normal human body and had all of the functions of a normal human body. As Jesus goes along, he begins to ask them questions. What are you talking about? Uh, Why are you so upset? And what's going on. And the first one to talk to them is the one that is named, the first one to answer Jesus is Cleopas. And he is incredulously said, you're the only stranger who's been in Jerusalem and you don't know about the things that have happened there. And then Jesus responds in verse 25 after they describe their hope for Jesus, who he was and what had happened. Then he says to them, O foolish ones, Biblically, a foolish person is someone who does not pay attention to the Word of God or learn from the Word of God. And so he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Now, this isn't, they have believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they haven't believed in the resurrection yet. Now, they are saved, but they're like many believers. They they are Growing, and they come to the scriptures and they read things and hear things, and they just aren't, they don't quite comprehend it yet, so they don't believe it. But that doesn't mean they're not saved at this point. They're just confused and trying to put everything together. And so, as we concluded last time, I pointed out uh, that what Jesus is emphasizing here is the same thing he will emphasize when he appears to the ten. He says, Ought not the Christ who have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Notice what he is doing is as he is addressing their confusion and their doubt and their disappointment and their uh, the sorrow that they're feeling, he focuses them on what the scripture says because it is the word of God which stabilizes us and gives us answers. And so then he gave them a... Bible class on Christology, what the Old Testament taught about the Messiah. And in verse 27, he began with Moses and then all the prophets, meaning he went through all of the Old Testament, and he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, not just the death, burial, and resurrection, but all the things. He gave them a complete course, and there they are astounded with his ability to handle the scripture. And so I concluded last time and said, what would you focus on? How would you summarize what the Old Testament taught? What were the key events that you would go through? What passages would you go through? And I gave you 10 prophecies to think about, to put that together out of over 100 prophecies. Now, that's important to be able to synthesize things down in the Scriptures so that you can help people who don't know the Scriptures very well to understand them. That's part of what the Museum of the Bible has done. There's been criticism, I think not fair, of the fact that they don't go into a lot of detail on this, what's in the Bible. They are not a museum of Christianity. They're not a museum of Christ. They are talking about the Bible, the hit, primarily the Bible, the history of the Bible, the impact of the Bible. But what they want to do in their goal and objective is to create an environment 
that that stimulates curiosity for those who come who don't know anything about the Bible to go read the Bible. I compare it to what happened at the uh, beginning of the Reformation, that the Bible was translated into the vernacular of the people. You now had a German Bible, you had an English Bible, you had a French Bible, you had other languages, the Bible in their own language, and people began to read it for themselves in their own language, and that was part of the spark that ignited the Reformation. People learned the gospel, and that's the idea of the founders here. And they are they are not trying to hammer people with the gospel. It doesn't have initially. I think they did have an evangelistic purpose, but you have to understand that when they first started, they were going to have a little small museum that was going to be in Dallas, and then they began to think it, it, we have more. It, it, we have to go bigger. We have to think grander. We have to refine what our purpose and our goal is. And as they did that, they came up with their stated goal that to get people to engage with the Bible. So one of the things that they have done is they've got an Old Testament di- uh, section, which has different rooms that you walk through, and they do a very good job of what we used to call a walk through the Bible, which was a very good tool. I went through several of these after I went out of seminary, and they were very good for synthesizing the major events and to give people that big picture of how all the events in the Old Testament fit together so that when you read it, you, you have a framework within, within which to put the details. Then they have another display that's about the world of Jesus, what, what it was like in Nazareth. It was very similar if you've been to Israel and gone to the Nazareth village. It was similar to that. And then they had a New Testament film that uh, began with John the Apostle in a cave in Patmos, and he's writing the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and he recites key verses from the first chapter. He does, doesn't explain the gospel, but he cites some gospel verses there that, that are present. Uh, the clearest expression of the gospel at the museum was they had a display in the section on the Bible and American history, and they had a display and a good film that they had on George Whitfield. It was animated, and they had a lot of quotes, and they would put all the quotes up on the, on the screen. And one of the statements Whitfield makes in a sermon and the verse they put up on the wall is, unless you're converted, you will not see the kingdom of God. That was the clearest gospel presentation in the museum. But it had many, many other things, and it gave you a good synthesis of Acts in the film on the New Testament. And so it summarized that. It's important to be able to have those kinds of synthesis-type structures so that you can plug the details in. It's like if you had a, had a big closet and you didn't have any coat hangers, your, all the details in the closet, all your clothes would just be on the floor. You have to have key points like coat hangers to hang your clothes on and to organize things, and that's what you do in this kind of synthesis. So we ended with that last time, and now we're going to move on beyond what Jesus said. They still don't know who he is, and he is... Uh, acting as if he's going to continue on his journey. Uh, Verse 28 says he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him. They have been 
just overwhelmed, I'm sure, with what he had said. And as they describe it later, they said, our heart burned within us, which is an idiom that, that they were just overwhelmed with what he was saying, and the heart refers to their thinking, and that he was just stimulating their, their thinking as he went through all the Old Testament passages related to who he was. But they still haven't recognized him. And so they implore him, abide with us, stay with us, for it's toward evening, the day is far spent. Uh, it's about to be dark, it's not safe to travel, and come stay with us, eat with us. And so he's invited to come in, and so he sits at the uh, table with them. And in verse 30 we read, Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And so the first thing that he does is that he takes the bread, and he is going to uh, give a traditional Jewish blessing. He is acting as if he is the host. He is acting as if he is the one who is uh, in charge, and they are allowing him to do that. He would have recited the typical Jewish blessing over the over the bread, Barach Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Hamotzi Lechem Min HaAretz, which means, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe who brings forth bread from the earth. That is pretty standard blessing that you will hear if you go into a Jewish home, especially if they're Orthodox. This is what they will recite. It is a blessing that has its origin back before the time of Christ. And notice that in their blessing of the food, they are not asking that God would bless the food. They are blessing God. And that doesn't mean that they are telling God something. And the word bless means to, to give something beneficial, something gracious, something good to someone. Of course, we can't give anything like that to God. But it is also an idiom for praise. So when it says in the Psalms, blessed are you, O God, it is, we should understand that to mean Praises should be to you, O God. May you be praised. That's the idiom. So when God is the object of the verb to bless, uh, it means to praise him. So in the blessing for the food, blessed are you, O Lord, our God. They are praising God, and one form of praise is to give thanks. And so they are giving thanks to God because he has brought forth bread, food from the earth, and provided for them. In Jewish thought, one does not bless the food, nor ask God to bless the food. One blesses God who has provided the food. One gives thanks to God. In First Timothy, which is really the basis for our giving thanks as New Testament Christians for food, Paul writes to Timothy, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. He is talking about food, and therefore we receive it with thanksgiving. So when we pray before a meal, the focal point is to give thanks to God. That is blessing God. That is what was going on in, in, in a Jewish uh, prayer of blessing. And Paul says, for it is sanctified. Sanctified is the Greek word hagiazo, means to be set apart to God. 
We are thanking God. We pray that he would sanctify the food, that it is set it apart for us to strengthen us and give us the nourishment we need in order to serve him in every area of our life, with our work, with our recreation, uh, with all of the different things that we do in life. Uh, we are to be servants of God, and so we give thanks to him for giving us the food and strength and nourishment in order to serve him. It was um, normal in a Jewish home, as I said a minute ago, for the host to be the one to break the bread and to pray. So this is completely out of order. Jesus takes it upon himself, and they allow him to because he has functioned as a rabbi, basically, along the way as one in authority, opening up uh, the word of God to them. And as a result of that, uh, he has demonstrated his wisdom and his understanding of the scripture. And so this is out of order, but they allow him to do that. And so as the, as the text says, he took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. Now what we see a little later on when they uh, go to the disciples, they say in verse 35, and they told and he, they told about the things that is the two disciples after they go to Jerusalem to the to the other disciples they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them by the breaking of the bread see it's not like all of a sudden the, god removes the blinders what happens is when jesus in a position of authority gives thanks for the bread and then he breaks it. There's something in the way he did this that all of a sudden they realize who this is in front of them. And so it's at that point that they recognize him. In Jewish tradition, it was taught, according to Barakot 6.1, the one who recites the blessing before eating stretches forth his hand first to partake of the food, but if he wished to give the honor of partaking first to his teacher or to one who is greater than he in the mastery of Torah, he may do so. In other words, though the host has the responsibility to do this, if they want to allow someone else to do it, it would go to someone who's a master of the Torah who has taught them scripture. And so uh, this shows this is a, fits within Jewish custom. Now, the second thing we learn here about the resurrection body is that in his resurrection body, Jesus is able to eat. He's going to do it twice in the passage we're looking at. He eats with them, and then when he appears in the appearance to the ten disciples, he is going to eat fish uh, again. So he's demonstrating that this resurrection body functions in many ways like our normal flesh and bone body today. So when they see him break the bread, Luke says, then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. So this brings up a third observation on the resurrection body, that it is able to materialize and dematerialize at will. So while it looks and appears and can function in many ways like a normal human body, there are uh, capabilities that go beyond our normal human body today. 
And so then we see the reaction now of these two men, these two disciples, after Jesus vanishes. They said to one another in verse 32, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us? What they're talking about is our brains were on overload. We were processing, going through so much. It was amazing. And in a lot of ways, as I was studying on this the other day, I thought about when I had gone to what I showed you earlier, that that demonstration, that exhibit at the National Geographic Museum, I would just, I mean, for the next three or four hours after I went through that, I was just amazed. I just, it just kept going over and over in my mind, replaying it, and just learned so much. It was phenomenal. That's what happens. You've gone through that, and you just feel overwhelmed with the content of something that you've learned. That's what they're overwhelmed with. The eyes have been opened to the truth of the Scripture. And they're so excited about it, they got up and immediately went back to Jerusalem, seven miles, so that's about two hours. It probably took them an hour and 15 minutes or less. They were, they were in a hurry to get there before it got too late and to find the 11 and those who were with them. Now, here it says the 11. Now, this is one, one of those things that people get a little confused about. Who are the 11? Well, some people say, well, this is, it can't, it, it's, it's all but Judas, because Judas has already uh, hung himself. But then that would include Thomas. And we know that that's the next appearance. Uh, that's the sixth appearance, or seventh appearance, when, when uh, Jesus appears to Thomas. I believe that the title that you hear all the way through the Gospels, even after this, John will use it as well after Judas is gone, still calls them the Twelve. That was their name. That was the name of the team. It's the Twelve. Even when there weren't Twelve, they were still called the Twelve. But when Judas was gone, Luke changes it and calls them the Eleven. That doesn't mean all Eleven are there, but that's the team. Thomas wasn't there. So I think that best explains the the shift in terminology that we see uh, and the difference in the Gospels. So when what will happen is they find the 11 minus Thomas and those who are with them gathered together. So it's not just the, the original disciples. They will become apostles. It's others, and they are going to tell their, their story. But as Luke tells it, we learn of a fourth appearance, and that is to Peter, that apparently after, either before or after Jesus appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus, he appeared privately to Peter. Luke twenty four thirty four, when the two from Emmaus get there and tell them that they saw the Lord, the 11 that are there say, yes, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told him, and then the two from Emmaus told about the things that had happened on the road, and they're all excited talking about everything that they have learned. The only other reference to this private appearance to Peter is in 1 Corinthians 15.5, and there it simply says that he appeared to Peter. This is the uh, fourth appearance. And what must that appearance have been like? For G- for Peter had betrayed the Lord. He had sworn three times that he would never do it. It won't happen, Lord, not me. And yet he did. He betrayed the Lord. He must have felt 
overwhelming guilt. And the Lord appears to him in private. And we can surmise what happens. He confesses his sin, and the Lord forgives him. Because the next time we see the Lord and Peter together, it's when they're, Peter's fishing up in Galilee. That comes in later on in John, John 21. But we learn something for that, that this intimacy that occurs in confession, confession and forgiveness is private. Sin is between us and the Lord, and that forgiveness is between us and the Lord. But there's one thing that came to my mind as I'm contemplating this, is that what's Peter learning here? He's learning about forgiveness. Some people have a hard time with forgiveness. Maybe you have a hard time with forgiveness. Maybe you think, you know, some people have done some things to me, and it's just, I don't know that I can ever forgive them. I think Peter was like that. Because Peter's the one who asked the question of the Lord back in Matthew eighteen twenty one, when the Lord is teaching about forgiveness, and Peter said, how many times do I have to forgive these people? No, once or twice, maybe, but if they keep doing the same thing and they keep they they keep on sinning against me, how many times do I have to forgive them, Lord? Seven times? Peter's thinking, that ought to be enough. And the Lord said in Matthew eighteen twenty two, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Now that's an idiom. Seven is the number of completion. Seventy times seven means indefinitely. You forgive them and you forgive them until you're out of this life. You never stop forgiving them. And it may be the same thing. Now, remember there's a difference between forgiveness and absolving people of consequences. We live in a culture where they don't always understand that. This always happens when some Christian or someone who has become a Christian in prison is about to be executed for murder. And the family says, well, I forgive them. That's wonderful. They have violated the law, and there's a legal penalty. There are consequences. Sometimes those consequences can be commuted. God forgave David of his sin with Bathsheba and his conspiracy to murder her husband, Uriah the Hittite. The penalty under the law for what he did was death. God reduced the sentence to a fourfold punishment. The baby was going to die. Uh, it, it all would affect David's family. The baby was going to die. He had one son who was going to uh, rape his half-sister, and then um, the third level of punishment was Absalom would kill the brother who had raped the half-sister, and then Absalom himself would rebel against David. So there were consequences. Was David forgiven? Yes. Were the consequences removed? They were reduced. God gave him grace to handle it. See, in life, there are times when there are people who have done things to us and may may continue to do things to us, and we are to forgive them. We're not to harbor mental attitude sins. We're not to be angry. We're to treat them with grace and kindness whenever we have the opportunity. But that doesn't mean 
that you continue to put yourself in a position where they're going to take advantage of you, abuse you, keep doing it. There, there, there may be consequences. And I think of a situation, because this is usually what's brought up, a case of a marriage. A woman is being abused by her husband, physically abused. So I forgive him. I just go back and get beaten over and over again. No, you forgive him and you go live somewhere else. There are consequences. You forgive him because you're not going to harbor bitterness and anger and resentment against him, but neither are you going to put yourself back in a position where you're going to be uh, abused and beaten and physically harmed or possibly killed. There are other things. It's a complicated situation, but it doesn't automatically mean that we just become somebody's punching bag because we're forgiving them. Forgiveness and consequences are different things. Peter learns this at that time because he has committed what he thinks is is a horrible, horrible sin, and it was. He's betrayed his Lord, and Jesus forgave him, and he comes to understand what grace is, and that will shape Peter's ministry for the rest of his life. And then we come to the fifth appearance, which is when Jesus appears to the ten, not including Thomas. Now, there's a lot in this section uh, covered. It's introduced in Mark 16, and simply summarized later, he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief. This wasn't a friendly meeting. He rebukes their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And so what we learn here is that the disciples are not expecting a risen Savior. They're not expecting uh, resurrection. They have to be convinced. There's nothing wrong with having to be convinced. We'll get into the rest of this passage on the fifth appearance and compare it with what's revealed in John 20 uh, next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity we have to study your word, to reflect upon the lessons here that, that your word is given with evidence. It is not something we just believe in terms of what some call blind faith. There's no such thing in scripture as blind faith. There's no such thing in Scripture as a leap of faith. It is a faith that is grounded in reality, a, a faith that is grounded in reason, and a, a faith that is grounded on evidence. And we will see that as we go forward. Father, we thank, we're thankful that we have a risen Savior. We're thankful that we have new life in Christ because he has been uh, raised from the dead and that now he is seated at your right hand, and that his resurrection is the first fruits for our resurrection, and that we have hope in a future eternity with you because of his resurrection. Now, Father, we pray for those who are listening to this message, those who are uh, here or those who are listening on the Internet, that if there's anyone who has never trusted in Christ as Savior, anyone who's never clearly understood why they can go to heaven or how they can go to heaven. That they would understand now that that is simply a matter of choice, a matter of what you believe, and that only by faith in Christ can we have eternal life. Scripture makes that very clear in the Gospel of John. Over 95 times, John says that it is faith. It is to believe in him. 
and that these signs are given that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. Father, we pray that you will make the gospel clear to those who are listening and those who need to understand and believe will understand that that is all that is required for salvation. And now, Father, we ask that you help us to understand these things and challenge us with the need to know the scriptures, to know them well, that we can lead others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.